si escuchas Crazy es muy loco, ¿ok? Gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to KUCR here on 88.3 FM, also broadcasting online at KUCR.org. This is Daniel with the Deer Report. Today we will be speaking with Demani Atiba. Our conversation will center around youth culture, youth communities, and address the ways that we as adults become participants of support. Before we begin, Demani is online. Demani, can you introduce yourself please? Yes, first of all, my name is Damani Ativa, and uh, thank you, Daniel, for having me. Currently, I'm a counselor uh, at the Southern California Counseling Center. I do individual counseling and uh, group sessions, and I work with primarily adolescent males. And um, through the years, I've been a social worker. I've worked as a supervisor at a juvenile detention center, a lot of community work around youth issues, uh, mass incarceration, uh, political prisoners, uh, education. So I've had a wide variety of experience and been very fortunate to engage the youth and work with the youth. And currently uh, what I'm doing now is ha- holding group sessions weekly with youth and seeing youth on an individual basis. So that's my experience in a nutshell. Before we begin on the specifics of like your current work with adult males and the group sessions, how do you frame, or do you frame, the youth community differently than the adult as you apply your work? I do address them and I approach the youth in a different way because what I'm mindful of is the youth, in my opinion, in my experience, are a mirror of where we are as a society and where we are as adults. And what I mean by that is oftentimes the youth is a good barometer for where a culture or community or neighborhood is socially, emotionally, politically, and culturally. So what that sometimes looks like is when I'm dealing with a youth and that person is anger, angry, excuse me, and I attempt to identify or we attempt to uh, be precise about the source of that anger, we can trace it back to a larger experience that either takes place at the home, school, whatever location or place dominates the youth's time, that's where we can trace that anger or on the opposite end of the spectrum, that joy. So in that sense, uh, I deal with approach a youth differently. However, when I'm dealing with adults, it's a different story because sometimes there isn't as much flexibility in terms of uh, transformation, what we can address, how we can address it, and the willingness to be vulnerable. So I hope that answered your question. It does. My background is in anthropology. Before that, I was a public school teacher. And my, my research capitalized on my previous experience as a public school teacher. I, I was an elementary school teacher. My research addresses education and youth culture. I ended up focusing on the middle school culture, so the age grade of maybe 13 to 15 is about the average of the community that I was focusing on and trying to kind of understand their participation in the school system. As I started going 
to do my observation, my field work, I noticed there was a, a very sensical, common, almost um, truth that was repeated over and over by the adults. And it was that these students were going through a phase, this youth phase, this transition phase. I think a lot of us have become accustomed to consider that when we see the teenagers, for example, that we call as a group, we give them a lot of leeway, a lot of freedom to be clumsy, to be not as coordinated in what we would want them to behave because we, we ex approach them as a transitionary period, like you're, you're on your way to becoming an adult. But one of the things that I find frustrating with that model is that it doesn't give it permanency, meaning this is what it looks like right now, and it actually is important to consider it as stable because they are living it right now. They're not literally projecting, you know, when they're going to be 35. They're, they're 15, and their truth is, is now. So one of the things that I started working with was really kind of creating a context for that community. I liked using the word youth communities because it allowed me to give them credit that they were working under a very logical mechanism of understanding. So they had rules for what they were doing. So the adults may have been confused by what they did, but within their community, it was all logical. It was sensical. It made sense, and it allowed them to survive and live and be respected in a very fruitful way. So when you mm. respond to the way that you think of the youth as a mirror, that does resonate to the way I was thinking about youth in the school context. Because in the school context, the way that I framed it was that what I saw on campus was a training ground for what was expected of them as adults. I saw a lot of bullying, but the bullying, yeah. I didn't like to just say it was bullying. What they were addressing were the categories of stigma that are part of our societies. Homosexuality was a source of, of bullying on campus, but what a coincidence that homosexuality among adults is a stigmatized category. You know, yeah, poverty, like kids were just treated very harsh if they didn't have the right shoes, the shoes that were the $120 shoes. Now, yes, I thought, what well, that's kind of funny because we're just calling bullying, but what they're addressing are class issues of adults. Yeah. Adults understand poverty and the stigma of being poor. So then the yeah. children, even though they're not working, they understand the class dynamics that we have in our society. So when you mentioned the idea that to look at the youth as a mirror, a barometer even, it works really well because I think that's one of the ways that uh, we can kind of use their experiences in a much more fruitful way. When you mentioned youth as a community that you're working with, more recently you've been working with youth as males. And can we talk a little bit about that? I really like what you just explained about your prior experience and how you uh, capitalized and built on that. And to go into my current experience with males, I work with a group of about 14, uh, average of 11 to 14 males each week who are uh, referred either by court or school into a teen, and I mean, a teen substance and alcohol abuse program. And essentially, we cover everything. And one of the things I do is, uh, you know, I've also taught school, elementary and high school, 
And I've also had extensive leadership training and communication training. So one of the things I attempt to establish in the room is listening and uh, validating and lending credence to their world. One of the things we do is I open it up and I work with primarily brown youth, youth of uh, Latin descent and some African-American. So one of the things we often talk about is this is your group. We can talk about what you want to talk about. And there are very few rules, but I want to address you guys uh, taking ownership of your group. And just yesterday, we talked about what it means to place demands on adults and what it means to have high expectations of others in terms of having them deliver and support your aspirations and ambitions as young males. And that seems to resonate. So my current work centers a lot around listening, really understanding their world, really uh, understanding what they're committed to, what their emotional experience is, and what they're actually saying. And the second part uh, revolves around empowering them to take control of their experience and realize that what they have to say matters. So, for instance, yesterday I asked them, I said, you know, everyone should come in here with a resume and everyone should place a demand on me and other adults in terms of asking for reference letters, in terms of asking us to support you in summer youth employment, in terms of asking us to support you in creating an educational plan. So those are the type of things we talk about in a nutshell, Daniel. Damani, I really like that perspective. It's, it speaks to the way that I've I've been working with this model recently. Not really recently. I think it's, it started when I became a father. I started realizing how little respect was given toward uh, youth and children any status that's not granted full adulthood and what I mean by respect is I, I really mean like in the most wide application of respect when I saw for example adults interact with my daughter I realized wow they don't even ask permission they just grab they just touch they hug you know yeah. and I could see yeah. her get upset sometimes she literally she's like don't don't hug me I didn't give you permission and as an adult especially now when we're entering the a context of the culture of consent we, we teach yeah. each other, like, hey, you don't touch unless you've asked permission. But with children, we don't ask permission. I didn't see a lot of it. And I started building more of a conversation piece, even among the adults. Like, hey, I'd appreciate it if you didn't do this. You know, like, ask her. And she will say yes or no. And some days she said yeah. yes. Like, you can give me a hug. Other days she didn't say. She said no. And I remember hearing or seeing parents kind of bribe their kids. Like, oh, no, you know, give him a kiss. He'll give you candy. And I was like, wow, what are you teaching that child, you know, that his his or her control is minimized and they have to comply to the will of adults. Especially, I think, as we want to build strong adults, it's important to do that from the beginning. And one of the things that I really like hearing you speak about this work where you kind of think about placing demands on adults, having the youth be able to have ownership of that expectation because one of the things that we have become accustomed to is the opposite in the adult world we look at youth let's let's call them like that age grade when they turn into the teenage bracket you know 13 to 18 and yeah. we're just looking we're just expecting yeah. them so much of them to be in line to correspond to our desires our wishes our sense of what is right and wrong but we would become insulted if they turned to us and said, here are our expectations of you. Even though 
we can stand back and realize how appropriate that is. Do you find that that flip is something that is is welcomed among adults? Is it welcomed among the youth themselves? Is it something you have to work hard to activate? One of the things I do find is it can be challenging, and it's a challenge that I love because it forces us as a society to be introspective and hold, hold ourselves accountable for where we have failed the youth. And what I mean by that, Daniel, is one thing that really works well with me is I take accountability for where we've come up short. For example, I, and this is personal and this is in my community, I talk to my uh, young men about college savings, how many of their families have money saved for them to go to college in addition to any scholarships they may qualify for. And youth communities, particularly youth communities of color, very few. Now, in my opinion and experience, that's not a failure on the child's part because the child doesn't have or youth adolescent doesn't have that type of experience in finance. That's a failure on, uh, and I use the word failure lightly, on adults' part. And then not a, with a moral charge, but if I expand it to family and communities, you have several communities failing to save money, myself included, to support these children in their educational ambitions. I bring it up because children in that age bracket you mentioned, that's one of the main issues they're faced with. Do I go to college? And if they choose not to go to college, if they want to start their own business, trade school, or military, still some finances will be beneficial. So one of the things we deal with forthrightly is where have adults let you down and how do we address that? That's one thing we deal with. And we also deal with their brilliance and why they're so intelligent, creative, innovative. And then the third thing we deal with, and these are things that really resonate with, with them, and this is what gains traction, as told to me by the youth. Because I'm always checking in because I think adults tend to have an unrealistic view of our progress with youth. So I like to check in and open up the dialogue so they can critique me, and they have critiqued me. But another thing I uh, also do with the youth is I always like to find out uh, how many people they feel like they can rely on, how many adults, and why. So those, for me, are parameters to adjust my interactions with them, and that has tremendous success. And the last thing I'll say on that score is uh, yesterday I talked to a young man, and we were talking about straight-A student who uh, was referred to our program and wants to be a civil rights attorney. And I talked to him, and I explained to him, be unstoppable. When people ask you how you're doing, use the word unstoppable. Not arrogant, but as a declaration, as a mantra, for uh, how you're going to fulfill your dream. And after I talked to him, his mother came to me and said, this is just yesterday. She came to me and said, continue success with whatever you're doing, Mr. Demonio. And I thanked her. And that part of that conversation I had with him stemmed from something I shared with the group that you and I talked about, Danny, when we talked about how many students of yours, particularly students of color, seek you out just to talk, or how many access you as an opportunity, as a resource, as a person who could just share their experience or share some light on what it's like to uh, matriculate through higher levels of education. And that story that I shared with them or conversation you and I had landed real well in the room yesterday. That's interesting you bring that up. I've always found that actually quite difficult because it didn't come naturally for me to play that role. Mm -hmm. no. So that 
several things happened. One is that along the way, I became older, and it took me a while to look in the mirror and realize that I was older. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So that when, yeah. I was, when I was meeting these young men, I can honestly tell you I was confused because I was going like, why are you talking to me like that? And, and when I say like that, I mean with, with respect, searching for advice, uh, guidance, because the very first time it happened, I literally felt like I'm just, I'm just like you. I don't have anything more. Yeah. But I understand now, now that I'm much older, and it's, it's obvious that there's an age gap now. But for, for a minute, I didn't catch it. Mm. And it took a while for me to become comfortable with, with that expectation, which actually I think I can own more how you phrased it the young men and women that I started meeting were placing an, ex- an expectation upon me. They weren't sending a card, you know, ahead of time. They were just walking up yeah. to me and they were saying things like, I'm really happy you're here. And I would be at first confused, like, what does that mean? And what it meant was, oh, it's good that I see a brown body in a place that doesn't have a lot of brown bodies. Yeah. Or it's good that I have someone that I can relate to because you talked about coming from an economically disadvantaged community. And even though I don't share your skin tone, I share your context of struggle economically and being the first generation in your community to go mm-hmm. to college. And a little bit at a time, I started piecing it together that it was this process of them coming up to me and putting the expectation, like, now step up. Like, okay, you're here. This is what we need you to do. It was difficult. And I, I still say it is a little bit difficult because I still get surprised. Like literally just in class, this happened the other day. And this happened before, but a student walks up to me first day of class and he says something to the fact of like, I'm really gra- glad you're here. I'm really glad, you know, I, I'm taking this class. And it starts pretty cool because I'm realizing, okay, that's just normal. And then he goes into this whole conversation. I was like, I haven't seen someone like you in my college career so far. And then again, me being naive, going like, what does that mean? And then he ends it with like, you know, he starts talking about his ethnic background. And even though it doesn't coincide with me, that's what I found interesting. Like, I I literally don't share his ethnic background. But his projection is like, you're close enough, man. (laughs) Like, you're close enough. Now, my job is to run away and say like, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to step up. Or be humble about it and say like, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. Absolutely. And I, I love that, Danny, because for me, your achievements happen in uh, not in isolation. They grew out of a, a web of experience. And one of the things I do, all of my friends who have higher education, they introduce themselves humbly. They usually don't ask themselves, introduce themselves as doctors or whatnot, like yourself. And, but I, and I'm willing to address a person any way they introduce themselves. However, and I said this to my youth group, what I do on my phone is I do put the credentials in my phone because I feel like that person earned it and they deserve that, those credentials somewhere, even if they don't introduce themselves that way and they want to be addressed on an informal basis. Going back to what you just stated, one of the things my dad and I talked about is as we age, we're perceived as leaders whether we want it or not. And when I use the word leadership, I mean service not being a dictator or not being a jerk or any of that stuff. So I think you raise a good point because even when I talk about you and Hector and other people who I know, who I consider friends and who've just achieved some uh, success in academia and other areas of life, I say that to them because I know with males, 
particularly in males and communities of color, in order to be it, you have to see it. So a lot of times when I talk about I have a friend that has a Ph.D. in uh, anthropology, and a lot of times I won't mention that you're brown. They'll ask. But you can see the look on their face because immediately that impossibility is expanded. Immediately. And I'm not talking about somebody who's a friend that I just, yeah, acquaintance. No, somebody I can get on the phone. You know, and somebody who I can interact with. So I understand, like, males from my elementary school days teaching experience, we're very visual and hands-on. Like, the concepts and abstract stuff, we really get it or really sinks in, and I'm including myself in this, when we actually get to manipulate it with our hands. And how that connects and relates to educational achievement and leadership and role models is when you see a Ph.D. anthropologist teaching from a community that was economically challenged, then the possibility for you is expanded exponentially. Because if we think back to our experience, Daniel, along the way, and we think about those teachers who touched our lives, that impact that they had on our lives, how did it expand our own personal possibility? If we ask ourselves that question, how did it? And that's the role you and I are playing now. And it comes with challenges, and it also comes with triumphs. I think that's a great way of placing it, because as I reflect, when I hear you speak about this inventory of people that have been part of our experiences up to this point that led us to move forward, one of the things that I remember was actually very few times where they explicit conversations of like this is this is what you can do most of the time it was this normalized effect and i've had this talk with you before that at a certain point you take it for granted that you're surrounded by people that are in positions that do not represent the expected norm of the yeah. society there was a time when most of us talked about oh well i don't have any people who went to college in my circle and now a lot of us we look around and by fortune privilege or luck we have many there are moments where you kind of go and it's like oh yeah today i was surrounded by law school students all day long or people getting their phd all day long and then what is even funnier is when people go okay but how many of those were of color and i go all of them now that mm. makes us stumble because like wait a minute where yeah. are you where are you? They right. just said that. And I was like, I don't know, but that's what happened. Right. So, right. Right. so I think yeah. there's an interesting component to that. Like, how do we get there? You know, and I think we got there based on that fortune of having a collection of people that along the way helped us out. Some of them, we can call on them immediately because we know the moment that that person extended their opportunity, you know, to help us along the way. Others, by their just presence I think that's what's cool how you mentioned it by yeah. just being in their class and they didn't even know your name you know because they were too busy teaching you calculus and and they weren't even the nicest people but you just realize like man that's a black body right there <laughs> and uh, he's doing his thing or her thing and you're just like maybe I can do it too you know that weirdness and I think that's what's amazing to consider because I like that frame you put that that we just kind of are that collection of experiences. And then those experiences involve people, like mm -hmm. just good people. Absolutely. And at the same time, that's what also makes, I guess, more frustrating. Because when I 
talk about working with youth, my frustration was at a couple points of analysis. So my research is is based on education and the process of assimilation and the way that the school plays different roles. So the I was applying a context that said school is a place where the social needs are reproduced, but the social needs are actually are embedded with inequality. So we're going to get all of it. Yeah. And when we get all of it, that means that we need to reproduce some really ugly stuff. So we, we see violence in school because that's part of the mechanism of instruction. It sounds awful to say that, but that's the reason I know it's part of the game is because there's not an active role to stop it. So just Absolutely. by allowing it, you might as well be sanctioning it then because you're not actively stopping it. And one of the things I, re I realized was this kind of this idea that said, well, these students are on their way to becoming adults. But the problems that we struggle is that how do we make sure that they do not get injured along the way? Absolutely. You know, And that's what I struggled with because one of the points of dissatisfaction has been how the school system is a subtractive process. Yes, we get excited because we, we learn new content. But along the way, for communities of color, historically, and I say historically meaning like this morning, up to this morning, it has been a process where you sit in that classroom and little pieces of you are removed. Absolutely. So then Absolutely. when you become an adult, you're, you're not the same person that entered. Yes, you've been given some new skill sets, but you can itemize. So for some of us, it's language. You On the first day of class, you knew how to speak Spanish, maybe Portuguese, French. And unless you're in a school that has a dual language process of instruction, you might come up with both languages. But most of us will be in a school where by the time you're done, you will not speak that other language. You're only going to speak English. And, Absolutely. The, and you're realizing that's just a linguistic issue. But talk about family content, like so that while you're in school, things that are in your home happening, they start becoming devalued. The way you even see yeah. your parents becomes devalued. And I can see it because I remember when I was a school teacher, I remember seeing that sense of frustration as I saw some of the teachers not interact with the most respectful ways they could with the parents because yeah. their parents didn't have a degree or their parents struggled with the language or the parents struggled just to hold themselves composed in an institution that was not welcoming to them when they were students. Absolutely. And along the Absolutely. way, the, the children learn, they can pick up those cues and they start having a little bit of less respect for their parents or less, less appreciation for what, what they do. So I think that's what I struggle the most is that, like, how is it that the school system, and not just the school system, but the whole process of growing up is a challenge because you said something earlier so to the effect that we're already born brilliant. Yes. So then what happens? You know, why is it that most of us, when we're 18, can no longer recognize our brilliance? Absolutely. And that's what I struggle. Like, what is it about what's happened in these 18 years? Absolutely. That Absolutely. has, like, subtracted. And, you know, uh, Daniel, what that brings up for me, eloquent, fabulous, well-stated. And what that brings up for me, a person who has passion about education, is 
to me, you raise up the issue and the challenge that I have as an adult and that I feel that we have as communities of color. How do we develop our children to succeed in academia and deal with alienation and misinformation that's built in the system, in the educational system? How do we get them to maximize educational opportunity? And one of the things I, you and I have talked about real informally, but I often think about you and Hector about in terms of one of my pet projects and passions is to break this pipeline from education, mass incarceration for black and brown youth. Because normally, if you don't succeed in academia, who's there to support black and brown youth when they're not successful, especially according to the standards of academia? And what happens to them, them in terms of how they experience themselves when they're not successful, which is the breeding ground for gangs and stuff, especially if you exist in that kind of community. If you don't succeed in school where you spend most of your time, all of us have, in terms of just on a real mathematical level, we spend most of our time in school during our life. If that's not a place of success, that's not a place of nurturing, nurturing and support, what happened? And to me, you, what I get from what you said, you and I are asking those questions, and we're not the only one. Other progressive people are asking the question, what do we do with those youth? And we still face with that challenge. Yesterday I gave uh, the young men an assignment, and I said, I'm gonna, I want you to ask your teachers one simple question, and this is a gauge I use for all uh, educational systems in school. This education you're teaching here, how has it advanced the interest of the brown community? Mexico, Central America, South America, the education that you're offering here, how does it promote and advance the interest of the brown community? Now, that does two things. It's a two-way challenge. It challenges the brown and black community to define our interests and be clear on our interests, and it also poses a legitimate question to the educational system, a valid question, because it does further the interest of the Caucasian, a larger community, However, does it have the same impact and effect for the brown and black community? During our educational time in, in, in public school, Daniel, we and I, you and I could measure that. We could look at it our own experience and see if we're any better off now in terms of educational system than when you and I started. When I kind of examined my, my own schooling, I did public school. I attended the local school in my neighborhood up to, at, at high school, I got bussed out through the magnet program. And I entered a school that had a specific kind of like science context. For me, it was the place where like for the first time I was outside of the black and brown community. Okay. And surprisingly, just because I did my elementary and my junior high in a black and brown context, the school demographic was black and brown, you know, 99.9. And that has to do with the way that we reflect our economic segregation of residents. There's this question that says, while I was there, how was my school? And surprisingly, I did my research in the same junior high I went to. And that was a a trip for me because I remember walking, (laughs) walking there walking through the halls and just having this really difficult time of holding my presence because I saw these kids and I realized I was them, you know, but here I am at that time 
you know, on my way to finish my doctorate. And what I thought was magical was the way that I could sit there as a, as a researcher and itemize what I was seeing. Yeah. And I realized that I was not seeing anything different. Like, mm. like so for example, what I saw when I was there as a researcher, I saw a majority brown community split between recent immigrants and U.S. born. Mm. Now, that's close to what I had. And then the the scaffold of the administrators are mainly white bodies from outside of Los Angeles, a lot of new teachers from outside of L.A. Um, when I was there, that's what I had, too. We had a lot of white bodies, a lot of white female bodies that were from the Midwest or even as far yeah. as New York, but they were coming out here because that was part of the teaching program that LAUSD had as an open spot. But one of the things I realized when I was there as a researcher is that I was catching on some some of the ways that these kids, as similar to what we said at the very beginning of this conversation, they spend all day long looking at this body, which at this point we understand that race is a social construct. The skin yeah. tone does not divide us into biological categories, but... Yeah. Our society has been built under the social construct. So that's the yeah. magic that w what they are seeing, they're seeing whiteness as it's socially built, legally built, economically built, and politically built. And they're yeah. learning the rules of whiteness. One of the yeah. things they learned, authority. Because that's what they caught mm -hmm. on. They thought it was interesting. Like, you know, oh. these are the teachers. They're the ones in charge. And one of the things they learned is that none of them live in their neighborhood and the evenings exactly. they leave and one of the things i found magical was like how much these kids wanted to tell their ki the teachers what happens in their neighborhood i would sit exactly. in the back and it would be like miss so and so let me tell you what just happened it was the school that i did my research was an economically disadvantaged school so there was a lot of uh activity we're just going to call it activity uh after school so the kids saw a lot of stuff that the teachers would eventually become frustrated and would tell them, like, I don't want to hear it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, man, that must have been devastating for this child, this young man, this young woman, let's say 13, that is looking up to this adult and wants to tell the adult, let me tell you what happens when you leave in my neighborhood. And the adult says, I don't want to hear it. Absolutely. Man, that's got to be crushing. Absolutely. And, you know, then you bring up so much. I'm, I'm thinking about, like, back to what you said, where all that's involved in their educational experience, all that students and youth communities and youth of color bring, everything that they're dealing with. And what I often think about, what well, one thing that got me into counseling is my supervisor is a <laughs> ex-gang member, and she assigns me counseling assignments. And uh, one of the things I think about is, like, where do these students get to tell that story? When I was in school, it was very few places I could go and talk about what was happening socially or emotionally outside of school. And from their perspective, I also like what you said earlier about their youth logic working. From their perspective, I'm imagining they're thinking, if I spend all my time here, why shouldn't I be able to talk about what's happening in my life? Which makes sense to me. We asked them to spend most of their time in school. So one of the reasons going back to why I got into counseling is because I realized that these students have something to say and it matters. And one of the things I say to them just to close it up is 
what you say matters, and it matters to me, because I'm encouraging a voice among black and brown. And the other thing I often say to them and my own daughters, because I'm a father and I relate to what you said about the world, my perspective shifting as a father. One of the things I say to my daughters and these students is never underestimate your power to make a difference. And you don't have to be 18, 21, or 25 to make a difference. Because I notice in communities of color, black and brown, we don't believe that we can make a difference. And if we can make a difference, that's something we do when we become adults. And we also believe what we have to say doesn't matter. So a lot of times we don't speak up when people are being discourteous to us or dismissive or disrespectful. Well, oftentimes we don't speak up or we're not getting everything we bargained for or everything they agreed to give us. So I'm out on a mission to transform mass incarceration to mass education and to transform uh, that our children, black and brown children and all children, are entitled to just as much social justice, economic justice, and political justice as any other children. Yeah. And i like to thank you for supporting me with that and just giving a voice to what's happening in those communities. Damani, with that, I thank you very much for sharing this conversation with us. Thank you very much, Daniel. You've just heard a conversation between myself and Damani Atiba, counselor, educator, community worker. Our conversation addressed youth culture and the different ways we can think about youth participation in general in our education system as well as society. I hope you found the topic addressed today interesting and relevant and ideally sparked new conversation on the other side of this microphone. You've been listening to Daniel with the Deer Report here on KUCR 88.3 FM. Keep you tuned in and join us next week. You're listening to KUCR on 88.3 FM, also online at KUCR.org. Playing great music since 1966. Perfecto.